Hey friends, today's show I plan to do from the porch of my rental home here in Portland, Oregon. One of the most exciting places to live. It's set, you know, comes with its spice on occasion. Uh, Really enjoying ourselves though. We we really still love it. It is true that now um, in recent history, uh, our, our Prius had the catalytic converter stolen right right from uh, beneath us but you got to understand the dog would bark every night at some kind of noise and uh, so that was you know what she was supposed to do but at some point I said please dog don't bark anymore and uh, she continued to bark at this moment somebody must have been stealing my my catalytic converter yep good news got insurance bad news the uh, the Prius is now there sans catalytic converter and uh, in drive, uh, undrivable, we do have a, a rental car that we're able to get to. Anyway, coming from that space, if you hear any noise, it's part of the ambiance. Appreciate you being with me. Today, I'm going to talk about retractions again. So this is the second uh, part of a series of little little talks I, I want to give solo. Stacy's uh, doing her own thing right now. She'll be back with us soon. But we're, we're going to be talking about ways in which... I am retracting some things um, from the past. In this case, almost, uh, you know, in many ways like last time, I'm not really taking anything back, but I'm trying to explain how my perspective may have changed since I wrote this piece. And um, most importantly, I want to decode for you what I was trying to do. Whether I pulled it off or not, we're talking about a piece I did a long time ago called Demon Semen, Metaphysical Assumptions about Genesis 6, 1 through 4 in the Reformed and Lutheran uh, interpretive traditions. That's, that sounds esoteric, but if, if, I, if I'm going to try to draw you in, which I shouldn't, because I, I only really want you to listen if you care about the subject or if you want to know what I think now about the subject. Uh, but otherwise, if you, if you are at all interested, this is the story in the Hebrew Bible of how the B'nai Ha Elohim, the sons of God, um, or the sons of the Elohim, had somehow relations with the daughters of men, the women, and they made some kind of demigods, uh, you know, human-god hybrids. That seems to be in the Bible. Some people dispute it. Why did I write about it? What was my point? Was it effective? And do I take anything back? That, friends, is the subject of today's talk. So glad you're with me. Let's go. This is one of those cases in my academic life, my professional life, and both are the same <laughs> because I'm an academic by profession. And the the thing that's weird about all this is it it immediately seems so interesting and clear to me that Genesis 6, 1 through 4, a very small piece of the Hebrew Bible, was uh, a locus it's a Latin word that means a place, but it's like it's like a place, it's like a topic uh, that can reveal so much about so much uh, re- related to people's thinking, religiously, philosophically, whatever. In this text, you're a fourth grader, you're reading through this thing, 
and you hear that the Elohim floods the earth and the, the God floods the earth because something went wrong and something went wrong right after you've got these, uh, these interesting beings, the Beneha Elohim mentioned. Now, we tend to think, you know, human beings weren't following God's rules. They weren't following the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments weren't written at this point in the biblical narrative. It seems there's a possibility that not only did something go wrong morally in the world, but that the Elohim was concerned about this problem that on the planet there were these giants, these Nephilim. The Nephilim um, are basically the fallen ones. These are the children of the B'nai Ha'elohim and human women. Seems pretty clear. Now, back in the day, almost 20 years ago, I wrote an article where I was using this story as a way to express, I would argue now, not very well, but I was trying to use this as a way to express my perplexity at this problem or this weirdness where I, I find that the you know, conservative Christians, fundamentalists in America, as they're reading these ancient texts, they want to say something that is in a certain social setting fundamentally problematic. That is that these ancient Near Eastern texts are not just edifying, interesting, poetic, spiritual, uplifting, frightening, whatever, but they are also science textbooks. That's a problem. That's a problem for our species right now. I would argue it's a problem for our emotional and mental well-being right now. But regardless, I am asked by at least a significant number of people within North America. They don't have to be the majority, but there's a significant number of people in North America that for much of my life have asked me to believe something or to speak to something that I, I thought was uh, untenable, um, the, the, the kind of scientific um, perspective. That's the dog. That's the dog worrying about a Mormon missionary walking by. God bless him. Anyway, the, uh, riding a bike by, as you would imagine, but alone, also interesting, while children play catch in the intersection. Anyway, so... So, so here I am, I'm, I'm kind of like contemplating like what, what, what the heck is the point of this text? I'm going to pause. Now, hold on a second. Hey, Bindi, Bindi, that's friends. There were things that I could not believe in the fundamentalist evangelical worldview about cosmology because I, it wasn't that I, like I wasn't, it wasn't that I was 50-50 and I was having a hard time figuring out which way to go. It was that I just, it was inconceivable for me to enter into the fundamentalist worldview as it related to the development of culture and science after just, you know, a few years of dipping into it. And, and yet, I came across this passage, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, where 
this huge proportion, like most of Protestant interpreters of this ancient Hebrew text, that's pretty familiar to everybody because it's, you know, you, you maybe you fall asleep by the book of Numbers or Leviticus or, or you know, the minor prophets or something, but surely if you're going to, if you're going to be a Bible scholar at any period in the, in the history of the Western tradition, you're going to have read Genesis 6. And, uh, and so the, the weird thing in this is that Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is completely ignored in terms of the, the plain reading of it. And no one really seems to fret much about it. Uh, and the it being that it was pretty quickly ignored for the obvious part of the story that it was. So, you know, sometimes you'll hear ex-evangelicals say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't like the way they, you know, narrate Jesus or the way they appropriate Jesus. You know, I'm, you know I have affinity with this. But it's interesting how far back this whole thing goes. So if you are just a secular scholar, you'll look back at Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and you'll say, here's this text where there are these, um, these angels, but really this is part of the divine council, these small case G gods, if, if that makes sense to you, that um, find women attractive, they make these hybrid babies, and these hybrid babies are, you know, basically the, the demigods of mythology. It's pretty straightforward. The problem is, because fundamentalists are forced to accept it as truth, it's the one part of Genesis that almost all of them will demythologize. Now, I didn't come up with that concept. That was something that that I had found in my research, but I, I definitely agreed with. But I had found myself in the spot where I just wanted to teach the history of religion, really, and philosophy, and... I kind of enjoyed doing it in a confessionally church-related context because that's where it mattered to people. Um, I had spent some time in interfaith dialogue at the University of Denver. Um, I should say the University of Denver was putting it together. It was this lunch. It was an interfaith lunch, and I was the evangelical representative, again, because evangelicals gen generally didn't want to attend it. And even though I was on the fringes of that, even in 2007, um, probably earlier 2005, I was, I was at least enough connected to it and still like embedded within it that, that I knew that world and I could speak to that world. And, uh, in, in all of this, um, if I had spoken to any of those people, by the way, you know, we, we would have looked at this text, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and, and saw all these parallels to Indo-European, Near Eastern, um, and, and, and other myths, specifically related to the empowerment of political structures, hierarchies, um, and kings through the endorsement of the gods. And, and very often this idea that the reason that we respect Pharaoh, who is semi-divine, or Alexander the Great, who gets elected semi-divine or whatever, is that they have some kind of uh, tie-in with the gods. And the gods had to use power to, to subdue the world. 
And even though it's sometimes brutal and ugly what a politician or a, or a king has to do to subdue the world, they're doing it in the name of these gods. And very often in mythology, they are descended from these semi-divine beings. Now, again, that's obvious to almost everybody, except apparently the Christians that I knew that took these texts seriously. Um, not just seriously, but literally. So I found myself as a 29, I think I was 29 at the time, maybe a little younger, as a, as a younger scholar at the time, I found myself in a world where my employment uh, came from a tradition that asked me to, to rise to the highest level of academic uh, success that I could and then teach within their system in a way that was faithful to what they believed. And one of the things they believed is the you know, importance of the plain reading of the text. What the text says, don't, don't bring in your system. Uh, I was in a Lutheran church-related context, so that's, that's part of it. Uh, and so uh, I, in, in looking at this, I say, well, I've got this, this very weird dilemma, and that is the plain reading of the text is mythological and maybe interesting. And strangely, I find myself more inclined to believe in semi-divine beings than I do in some of the weird dogmatic superstitions of uh, fundamentalist Christians. But I find myself, in any case, I find myself in the spot where I'm asked to believe that all known biological species, animal species at least, were put on a boat by a, a dude in the ancient Near East. All of them. And I can't affirm or deny it because the statement itself just explodes my brain. I can't... I can't um, it's just too tiring. I can't come up with a, a concept of that. I might... If I really want to say that Noah's Ark was some kind of spaceship that had uh, just collected the DNA of all species, plausible, great science fiction, but that's not what it says. And so I'm asked to believe the plane reading plus this thing that doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem possible. Um, I just can't conceive of it. Not that it's unlikely, but impossible. I can conceive of a resurrection even, a supernatural resurrection, easier than I can visualize what I felt like I was supposed to believe about Noah's Ark. But right in the same part of the, of the Bible, in this case the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, um, in, in the book of Genesis, first ten chapters, we're here in Genesis 6, and I've got myself a problem. That is, a problem that these other... American fundamentalists don't have, but a problem that I have, and the problem is, all right, one of the fundamental, not intended pun, one of the fundamental aspects of human history, according to the Hebrew narrative here that I'm looking at, is that we have these renowned men of old, these kind of semi-divine beings, the Nephilim, that are giants, and they're scattered. This, this whole story of giants is all throughout the Hebrew Bible that Christians call the Old Testament and that I was taught in many contexts that I had to believe literally. But they have a hard time figuring out when to believe it and when not to believe it. So there are some times when, of course, 
that makes a lot of sense. We talk about Gigantopithecus or some 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 kind of fossil or something, and um, you know that's a whole other can of worms. But what I end up finding in this article, or what I reported in the article, but what I had found was not what I expected. What I expected was that Calvinists being very interested in coherentism and, and consistency and their systems, I assumed that I was going to have this kind of confirmation bias experience where I was a Lutheran, so the good guys would end up being Lutherans, and, and I wasn't a Calvinist at the time, so I'm not, I'm not going to assume that the Calvinists are going to win this one. But I assumed that the Lutherans and the Reformed, that is the Lutherans and the Calvinists, because Calvinists and Reformed are synonyms, basically, for our purposes. And um, the, 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 the both of them would be different, and that the Lutherans would do it right, and uh, the Calvinists would do it wrong. What, what I found was that they both basically came to the same conclusions, but for different reasons. Calvin seems to have had a problem with Genesis 6, 1 through 4, because... It was uh, so obviously resonant with pagan stories about the demigods. That's my short version of his, his commentaries. He basically says, we don't need to talk about that. There are speculations about this, but those are silly. Don't, don't have those speculations. So I anticipated that Calvin was going to say, I don't believe that the B'nai Ha'elohim of Genesis 6, 1 through 4 are semi-divine beings or divine beings because of my a priori philosophical metaphysical assumptions. And that turned out not to be what he said. He didn't really address it because he was embarrassed by it is, is it, is the way it seems to me. And he just kind of moves on. Now, Luther hits it head on, and Luther says what's really going on is the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, are those uh, kings and, you know, bishops that lord it over other men, which is a great theme, you know. So, uh, A plus for Luther hitting on a theme that I, I find uh, to be helpful for human emancipation. Nonetheless, um, it was very much caught up in his own concerns, so he was concerned about um, monarchs and, and prelates, that is, church leaders, bishops, lording it over him. And that's me too. You know, I, I get that. That's why I was a Lutheran for so long. Um, but, the, but, the, but the point is, if you look at the text, go read it yourself, read it in a couple translations. It doesn't really lend itself to that, maybe by allegory you know, by way of allegory. But Luther didn't want people doing allegory. Luther said, read the text as it stands. And so in this article, I was, you know, basically narrating the way in which the Lutheran and the Reformed metaphysics play into their reading of Scripture. And that even though they believe in this principle of the Reformation called sola scriptura, which is the idea that you should only have uh, scripture or, or, or special revelation, a.k.a. the Bible, as your source 
for belief about the divine. And nothing else, by the way, um, or at least in some very uber-Protestant versions of it, that is not church tradition, not reason, not emotion, not experience. Just scripture, just scripture by itself. We just believe the Bible, nothing else. No other backstory, nothing else. You know, I was so trapped in the system that I didn't say it explicitly enough, which, by the way, is my retraction. I don't really retract anything in the article, but I'm retracting my coyness or my... um, my lack of explicitness because basically what I was finding myself in is this idea that there's these, these Protestants that are demythologizing this text because it makes them uncomfortable. It happens to make them uncomfortable. I don't know why, because they want me to believe that the earth is less than 10,000 years old and that all these animals got on a boat. But this, this idea of angels making babies with humans is just too much. And it kind of leads me to this sense that in this weird, ironic way, some absurd belief that is just absolutely not possible, making somebody believe that, there's some value in that. There's like this almost perverse value in in forcing somebody to say that 2 plus 2 equals 5. It's really hard in the 21st century to be forcing children all around the North American continent to be- and other places, by the way, um, to believe that a, a world that most believe is not less than 10,000 years old is that, and then forcing them to kind of connect the dots between the natural world they observe and that uh, fundamental ideology. That's what's going on. And we see that, and we can make fun of that, and we can laugh at it um, in the in the mainstream world. But the thing that's weird is there's this implicit business that, that goes unnoticed by the people themselves. It's not something that we talk about. And the implicit business here is that I was pointing, I was, or what I was looking for in that article was a gotcha. Look, honestly, what I was looking for was having been somewhat um, disappointed by the reformed Calvinist tradition, tradition that I discussed on the last retraction. I'm now looking to say, oh, is, isn't it true that the Lutherans are better because they, they're willing to deal with the paradox. They're, they're willing to deal with the text and simply accept it. And what I had hoped at the time was that the Lutherans would accept that Genesis six, one through four was indeed about semi-divine beings being created, the, the Nephilim, the fallen ones. Now get this, not because I am extra keen to believe, although it's fun, that there were Cyclops uh, specimen on this planet, which would be fun to believe. You know, cryptozoology is fun. All that's fun. That's great. That'd be interesting. But I didn't, that wasn't my main motivation. My main motivation was to understand, at least in the first part, that I was in a tradition, the Lutheran tradition, that was willing to just deal with the data as it came and not try to pack it into some kind of um, coherent formal system. But both the Lutherans and the Luther- both the Lutherans and the Calvinists were, you know, very, very much in some way drawn to a quick and easy dismissal of a very important part of the plot. 
I mean, just just complete. It's it's like you're reading. I mean, you're reading Harry Potter or you're reading um, uh, Moby Dick or something, and you're like, well, I know that most people think that <clears throat> Moby Dick is a is a whale, but he's actually just a friend, you know, of of Captain Ahab. It changes the story pretty significantly, right? And I, I guess what I failed to mention so far is that what Luther and a lot of the Protestant interpreters end up saying is that the the story really means that there were these these kings that um, were a different genetic line than the line of Seth or something. You know, like the these these kings um, were the sons of God. Now, the fun part is, in one weird way, the fundamentalist evangelical mainstream tradition that says these are uh, the Beneha Elohim are the just human beings kind of makes sense it actually makes sense historically here's how it is true that in the ancient near east the myths that undergirded the the monarchies and the hierarchies of the the world in those days these walled cities you know, the, the mythologies always did make this case that the reason that violence was okay and the reason you had a state, the reason you had hierarchy, the reason you had this rule and this authoritarian rule was because the person doing the ruling was just doing their duty and they were acting as the imago in a sense. They were the representative, the viceroy the the governor for the higher god and one of the great ways to to narrate this is to say that these were semi-divine beings they are part human and they're part god so this is just kind of part of the ancient near eastern mediterranean areas development in terms of monarchies and it's in the bible and we we just kind of have to face it. And the way we face it sometimes in Protestant mainstream American evangelicalism is we simply don't face it. We just ignore that, that part of the story. But we do it in a way that makes it more rational and by making it more rational, more believable. And that was the key, I think, in many ways that... 17 years ago, that, you know, that, that was the thing that started to unlock a whole new set of options for me. But I didn't mean to do it at the time. But basically, the, the, the thing I realized was that these fundamentalist, literalist Christians were unable to accept the plain reading of a biblical text if they couldn't rationally um, adopt that view or if they or if they couldn't incorporate that view into their uh, their actually modernized secularized worldview it happened to be that many 21st century christians were were able to kind of bypass some of their other ways of thinking to allow for a young earth and a global flood and all this but they were not able to imagine the simple possibility that a that a, an angel, a demon, or a god, or a, however you want to talk about it, could create some kind of physical existence that would be capable of procreating with biological human beings. And I don't know why this is strange to me, but maybe not strange to you, but isn't it... I'm just trying to convince you that that seems weird, that like getting all the species onto a boat was not weird for some people, but the idea of 
matter, uh, material beings, human beings, with ethereal beings mating and making babies, that was just out of the question, just fundamentally out of the question. So there was at least some kind of rationality, some kind of worldview at play, and that worldview was preventing interpreters for 500 years from accepting something. In other words, even though the science, quote-unquote, the science that was keeping people from reading the Bible naturally, plainly, even though that science was old, even though that science was... Uh, out, is outmoded and obsolete, we still find fundamentalist evangelical Christians using science to override the plain meaning of Scripture. It just happens to be <laughs> lagging a couple centuries. <laughs> Does that make sense? And once you get that, then you start to worry, like, wait a minute, am I on the pursuit? I mean, as a, as a person who wrote the article, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wait a minute, am I in a, on a team of people that are pursuing truth or are we just, are we just like LARPing? Are we, are we playing this game that is um, kind of like Age of Empire? Like I'm, I'm, I'm almost playing this game where I'm setting up the limits of what my technology can do in terms of, of mining and, and, uh, and, and, and fighting and so forth. Is it possible that the only difference between fundamentalist American demythology, demythologizing of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the only difference between that and kind of mainstream historians kind of trying to recreate the, the authentic context of the first century where Jesus was, was doing his thing, that the only difference is that one has been dragging their heels uh, for 500 years of historical and, and critical scholarship. Is it possible? Because in other areas of existence or a thought, you have these kind of polarities. You have Eastern traditions that basically say, the, the main thing to realize is that human beings like Lao Tzu or the Buddha, they like emerge out of the earth, kind of like flowers out of the mud and the, the mundane becomes universal. It, be, it, it, it grows into something transcendent. So that's one side. Or there's this like kind of polar opposite, which is this Western idea where the God imprints itself onto humanity and creates it top down. Those are kind of two different things. I was, you know, it's easier to, to see it as two different things. But here I have modern science and modern secular scholarship that treats ancient texts, holy texts to people. Um, and I have fundamentalists treating these texts in the West. And in this article, I come across this, this realization that in many ways, the fundamentalists and the modernists are, are operating with the same rules. But that unsettling feeling starts to set in that my own tradition happens to just be like, you know, set back a couple grades. We're still on the same trajectory, but we're set back a couple grades. But we are not going in the same direction as the people I want to, the people that are looking for truth and goodness and beauty. We're just kind of marching down this same modernistic trail. We're just behind that's what I came to realize. The point of that article was for me to kind of highlight this absurdity. But 
at the time, I'm still trying to kind of operate within a place where I'm, I'm just trying to get this thing published. I had this, get this, I had this like $300 um, grant from my college at the time, Union College, thank you, um, to just, you know, work on an article. So I was finishing up this article and I was trying to get this thing published and I was trying to apply it to the, the so what question, which I think is something that I, I do retract, which is, what I've just said, this idea that, that there is this, this interesting paradox in the interpretation of this, in the interpretation of this text, um, that then kind of going to the, so what for the sake of doing positive theology today, that's the part that it was half, you know, half baked for me because I didn't really know where I was going to end up, uh, what, you know, I wasn't thinking about doing theology for a confessional tradition in the same way. So, you know, I kind of wish I pulled back a little bit on what it means. But ultimately what I do say is it doesn't make any sense to try to defend the literal interpretation of Scripture by de- demythologizing it first. Uh, when you're uncomfortable. It just it just kind of shows the, the weakness of the whole thing. I, I also appreciate, I think... Um, what this this exercise when I was writing it what it taught me because uh, I think it was the Lutheran Quarterly that uh, rejected the piece and uh, I was surprised and when uh, not that they that, not that they rejected it but that that they had so much good advice to give me and that was um, that this idea of objectivity or the idea that we could ever get out of ideology, that we could ever get out of our cultural embeddedness, our metaphysical assumptions, that that itself is still part of that modernistic problem. That, you know, if, if not impossible, it's not all that easy to get rid of your ideologies. It's more important to recognize what they are and then evaluate them and, and then move on. So in, in a sense, again, I don't reject the, or I don't really retract uh, the article itself. It's embarrassing, pers- first of all, because I have this weird way of doing titles where I, I, I just laugh to myself and I find them clever and then, you know, a little too clever, demon semen, you know, catchy, I'm not making any money off it, so what's the, what's the point of having that, you know? But um, again, there, that, that whole point was in the late... Middle Ages and in the early modern world, they didn't think that demons could have semen. I mean, that's that is kind of the point. But uh, but what I want to reject is that that there's this idea that we could still have objectivity in the sense that the perspective or the experience that you're having of perceiving right now is the universal God's eye perspective. Unless you mean that every little tiny perspective is part of the insect-like, god-like perspective, then any perspective that claims to be the the god-like perspective, the the all-knowing, omniscient perspective, is is definitely suspect. Um, I don't reject the idea that the idea of god kings. Uh, isn't still an interesting piece of Western history and the development of what we call civilization. And I don't really have a new or different view of the history of of this text. What brought me into the study of religion as a young person, I think, was a good impulse. It was a positive drive towards 
understanding, meaning, goodness, truth, and beauty. And that positive impulse in a human being is something that was used to kind of rope me into something that maybe I would argue now sidetracked a life direction. It took my energies and and put them into something that that I no longer find a, a helpful construct. But they used something that was very powerful, um, this idea of wonder and mystery in the world. And if you look at this story as just one example of Genesis 6, if you look at it from a modernistic perspective, if you look at it as if this is a science book and a history book, then, okay, you've got two options. You can either see it as your history and you're living within a mythological narrative that's helpful. I mean, we tend to respect indigenous cultures, mythological language, and most of the time, neither they nor we think that anybody's really taking it that, like, literally and seriously in a, in a scientific way. So it's, it's salutary for them. It's helpful. And we don't want to take it from them. And, uh, and they actually are contributing to the conversation about meaning and humanity through these narratives. But now something has happened where this biblical narrative is, is forced upon me but it does not allow me to use it. So I have to, I'm given this medicine, but I'm not allowed to use the medicine for what it's for. Right. So I'm given this, this mythos, but I can't treat it as mythos. And so, and so I have to like squeeze it into my luggage, my, my modernistic luggage. And it's an embarrassment, but it's also a, like an encumbrance. And, and it, it doesn't, help me explain anything about the world other than it, it might be there and it, and it does, right? (laughs) Like if there's, if there's a way in which it can like be carried on in culture and I can start talking about like capitalism as Molech or something. Yeah, that's fine. But, but I, I guess what I'm saying is the fundamentalist move that I experienced growing up of having adults tell me to demythologize in a fundamentalist context a text that could be useful for other imaginative purposes and and integrative purposes and life-changing purposes that is i could read the bible and have a life-changing experience if it weren't for fundamentalists trying to make me treat it like history and science because when they do they do two things one they make me believe absurd things or two they make me they make me deny obvious things about the bible itself that they that they basically deify. And that kind of paradox, friends, is a living hell. And I guess if I was not clear today, just take it at least as this. Um, this is what whatever the hell that was that I grew up with has done to my head. Right? It has put me into these spots that in my best days I can only chuckle at because they're, it's kind of hilarious how impossible it was to believe it. Right? It's not that I don't believe it. It's that I have worked really hard to try to, to, to be able to find a way to say that I authentically believe it. And whatever that is, I can't do it. Not because I've weighed it and I found it wanting. It's because it's, uh, in many ways, 
self-contradictory and imperceivable. Um, it, it really is more of an exercise in bowing before the absurdity of authoritarian rule sometimes. Now, maybe I'm overplaying it, but that's how I felt it. And friends, if you want to be free, read the thing how you want to fly with it. I don't care. But whatever you do, do something that is taking you down the path of happiness and freedom. And I wish you, as does Stacy. And on her behalf and the rest of my crew, we wish you peace upon peace. so much friends for joining us for this episode of the protect your noggin podcast you want to join in on the conversation we'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show you can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button and don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending you can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.